that. Thank you, Chris. Good. I'm going back uh, this morning to the first, really, sermon series I preached when I arrived here a little over three years ago, Confessions of a Pastor. In that series, I talked about things that I and many pastors can wrestle with, whether it's anxiety or feeling inadequate, uh, anger, dealing with criticism, and y'all let me stay anyway. So I'm thankful for that, and apparently that 2016 uh, list was not exhaustive because I want to come back uh, to some other struggles that maybe I have, maybe you have, that will be hopefully helpful. If not for you, it'll be helpful in your ministry to somebody else uh, who wrestles with these things. Uh, this comes from our reading this week. If you've been reading the book of Numbers in our three-year uh, Bible reading plan, then you're already ahead and you've already wrestled with this passage. And if you're not on that reading plan and you're a little jealous of those who are ahead, that's the topic for today and you need to repent. <laughs> I can sometimes wrestle with jealousy. And you see it here in Numbers 12 and you see it throughout the scriptures. Jealousy is a word we find everywhere. And the jealous may not have as as dark of an understanding that we ought to have with it when you go to the dictionary or you look up uh, that word and say what are the synonyms for that word there's a little bit more bite to those words words like envious words like covetous or words like desirous now listen jealousy is not always a negative thing you look to the scriptures the first time god gives the ten commandments and then the second time he has to give them to them he says to them i am a jealous God. Jealousy is a good and godly thing because we know that God does nothing that's unrighteous. So here that jealousy is right. Even our students at their pinnacle student meeting sing a song that says, he is jealous for even me. And there's those who we see in scripture who are jealous for God. I'm not going to read it here because it's not a scripture for the faint of heart. But you watch Phineas and his passion for, commitment to, and jealousy for God. And that's what God calls him out and says, he is jealous for me. But that's not what we see going on here in our passage this morning. There is a jealousy that's here that I watch my own life and see how jealousy can subtly and quietly creep in. And not only can it take hold of me, but there is a fallout from it. It's not just what happens within me, but typically there is consequences and ramifications because of it. So you look at Numbers 12, and you see it even creep into the lives of people like Aaron and Miriam. So if you're following along in your notes, what we see here is their rationale for it. We see the reason behind their jealousy. Now, what had these two seen? Miriam and Aaron had seen God show up in fire and in cloud. They had seen God heal in incredible ways. They had seen God defend them against the Egyptians, even swallow them up with the Red Sea. They had seen God discipline. They had also seen God give second chances. All of that to provide food, water, escape, when there seems to be none, all of that, and we get this. And so they come to 
Moses and say what they say. Miriam and Aaron. Who are they, by the way? What are, what are the, the advantages they have in their lives? You look at Miriam. She's a prophetess, one who has spoken for the Lord. She's also, even after the Red Sea, got to lead worship for the Lord. Apparently, she has a gift for singing in worship. And then you look at Aaron's life, this one when Moses chickens out and doesn't want to say anything, Aaron speaks. And it's also Aaron who's commissioned as a high priest. He and his family. These people wonderfully, incredibly used by God in the center of God's plans for the redemption of his people and the bringing about of the Messiah, his son Jesus. Wrapped up in all of that, both greatly gifted by God, What about Moses? Why does he get what he gets? Who are you, Moses, and why don't we get to speak while you get to speak? We've talked before that in a recent poll, they ask what makes us happy, and it's not the things that we might think about, at least that's what Americans have said about themselves. It's not if I have more stuff, it's not if my kids are successful. It's not if I have a ton of money. The root of it was the thing that makes us most happy is if I have more stuff and my kids are more successful and I have more money than my neighbor. So let me, let me just give you a word of advice. Just carefully and intentionally move by really unlucky people. And if you'll do that, <laughs> or we can work on our hearts, because all, all of us, I would guess all of us are, are tempted to play this game. What about them game? And that's what you see going on here. You just see it from the beginning of our lives, right? You wake up Christmas morning, you open that package, and it's that $6 million man doll, or that evil Knievel stunt bike, or whatever that favorite toy you ever wanted, and then you look across the room, and there's your sister with a Barbie house this high. You've been begging for the evil Knievel doll. You've been begging for Stretch Armstrong, and you get it. But what about her? Oh, and you've done your homework. I don't care if it's Amazon.com or the old school Sears and Roebuck catalog. I know that costs 10 bucks more than evil Knievel. What about her? Why does she get that? Why does he get that? We play this game early on. You play that with a coworker? Why'd they get that? Why do they get to do that or have that time with the boss or whatever that may be? You even play that in friendships? You play that ever at church with a church position? Does somebody else got? Barry, you ever play that when you were doing youth ministry in the four churches that you served in those four towns? The Baptist and Presbyterian youth ministers always made more money than you? Yeah, I played that game. Why is that? Baptists. All right. Uh, <laughs> we play that game, and you're not alone. It's on every page of scripture. Peter has been beautifully 
brought back into the fold, forgiven by Jesus Christ and given a ministry in the last chapter of John's gospel. These three times, do you love me? He's reinstituted from the three betrayals, and after that beautiful moment of reconciliation, what does he say? What are you going to do with John? What are you going to do with that guy? Listen, this is Peter. This is Peter who walked on water. This is Peter who's not only one of the 12, he's one of the inner three. This is Peter who makes the confession given to him by God above, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But the last words we get out of him in John's gospel is, what about that guy? What are you going to do with him? And by the way, that guy we believe to be John, John does the same thing. Here's John, one of the sons of thunder, not just a disciple, but one of the three, faithful. Jesus has just given one of his predictions of his death. Jesus Christ giving himself for us, going to die for us, right after one of those three predictions we get there. And there's not only a request to sit on the left and right hand of of, uh, of Jesus in the coming kingdom. But John's mama gets involved. John's mama gets involved in that. Just like Numbers 12. What about your position? Not about mine. Miriam's got these blessings. Aaron's got these blessings. But what about what you get? It's one of the saddest uh, moments in all of Scripture to me is Luke 15. You have this prodigal son who goes off in wild living, comes back, there's reconciliation, and the older son hears the news and he won't be a part of the party for this older son who's come home. And when he confronts his father, he doesn't do what the younger son did, use a proper title, father. He just starts in. You never gave me And he over-exaggerates that, too. You you never gave me this. And then when the father says, hey, my son was lost, we had to celebrate, we get get no hint that he came in, by the way, which is just as deep an offense, that he didn't come to this public event, that he embarrassed his father by publicly saying, I'm not going to be a part of that. And we're left wondering, whatever happened to that kid? That self-righteous kid just stewing in what he didn't get, and it paralyzes his life. And so we look to Numbers 12, and Scripture here says, yes, they're bringing up, hey, this wife of yours, is that it? And we're going to use that as a front to complain, but you and I know so many times the presenting issue is not the real issue. What's out in front is really not what's behind our comments. So they use that, but really what's going on is how come you get that and we don't get that? Can God speak only through Moses? What about us? I'm a a prophetess. I'm a high priest. They are playing the same game that was found from the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis. You go to Genesis 3, They're playing that same game in verse 2 of our passage here. God has said, look, just not the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it's this issue of trust. Trusting God for his 
provision, trusting God and his goodness, this temptation and worry and wonder, is he holding out on me? Why are you holding out on me? Let me just at least have that fruit. And then you see it play out as well in the next chapter with Cain and Abel. Why did you take Abel's sacrifice? And we know how that plays out and the fallout from that. We all play that trust game. That's what it ultimately really comes down to. And the sad thing is, Moses has finally been able to breathe. This entire saga from Egypt to Exodus to this point in the move towards the promised land, from chapters 1 through 10 in Numbers, there's been peace. I mean, there's been all kinds. As soon as they leave, they're complaining and bickering and whining about everything along the way. But for 10 chapters, we've had peace. Nobody's complained about anything. But then in the chapter just before this begins the first of seven more occurrences of the people of God, here even his own family, bickering, complaining, and grumbling. What about me? Why them need to hear that today to trust god with the gifts and the family and the work and the life that he's given you and trust his his perfect gifting in that and to look away from any temptation where i say but what about them whether it's at work or in family or in church wherever that may be how do you need to to really do the, the searching work and see how paralyzing it can be to hold on to that. I mean, just for Miriam and to Aaron to go head to head with Moses, who's been so faithful to do this work, and yet it's just crushing their relationship. And we're gonna we're gonna close today with the fallout from that for others. It will paralyze you. Let it go. That's the reason behind their jealousy, the what about them game. But let's look at, for just a minute, the ramifications of the repercussions then. What happens in verse 10 for Miriam? For doing this, for initiating this, it's leprosy. You all have learned about that in Sunday school or in preaching, just the horror of that physical disease. What we tend to forget, though, even though it's, it's, it's horrific, we, we, we forget it's, it's worse than that. To have that put on you means now that you are unclean. Going back to our Leviticus readings, this is equated the same as a touching a dead body. You would have been unclean for a long season and had to gone through cleansing for that. This is Miriam, a prophetess set aside to speak for God and now not only is there a physical fallout that's unthinkable leprosy spiritually you're dirty you are unclean the fallout from this sin and playing the what about me and what about you game it really is horrific the individual fallout here but this is where it gets worse. If you're following on your notes in verse 15, it's the corporate. It's the corporate fallout too. I've said to you before, I wish my stuff and my sin would stay with me. But there's always a corporate fallout from that. The journey they are making to the, pro, the promised land 
It shuts down. We say, well, 40 years. What? It shuts down for a whole week. They are moving, but because of her, because of this reach, because of this complaint, everything stops. All these people, because of that, that jealousy, it stops the people. And my stuff and my sin, your stuff and your sin, will stop others in their tracks too. God's not a God of shaming. I need you to hear that. If that's happening in your life, that's the devil or other people. God will speak the truth. But God does bring this up again later in, in Deuteronomy 24, and he doesn't do that to shame Miriam, but he's saying to the people of God again, I need you to remember this. Don't forget this. And unfortunately, Peter forgot, John forgot, and I too often forget. You play this game, it will not only be fallout for you, it will damage other people. You will not be what you should be for God with other people. Either they'll directly or indirectly experience your fallout. It'll paralyze you. Deuteronomy 24, he reminds them again of this moment because he doesn't want them to forget. Hear this warning this morning. Um, but then lastly, what are the responses here that we get from, from everybody in this passage? And here's where we get Here's where we get at least some light at the end of the tunnel. And I want us to first look in verses 4 and 5. What do we see of the response of God to uh, Miriam and also Aaron's playing of the what about them game? First, we see that God is our defender. He's defended them against the Egyptians. You know what's coming in the next chapters if you've been reading along with us. He's about to defend them as they move into the promised land. He defends routinely Moses as people continually grumble against him. You go to the Psalms, you will find this word defend or defender in several places. You go to the prophets, you'll find it even more, that God is a defender of his people. And here when, when Moses is, is, is questioned, he doesn't even get a chance to say anything because God, the word here is, suddenly swoops in. And what does he say? Get to the tent of meeting. I don't know what that was for you, but every mama and daddy, every grandmama and granddaddy has a phrase that lets you know discipline is coming. Right? This is a woodshed moment. God steps in for Moses before Moses can say a word and says, get to that place. For me, it was a Cub Scout meeting back in 1977. My father had handed me a nice plate at the Cub Scout yearly banquet. He said, be careful with this plate, hold on to it. That lasted about two minutes before I dropped it and broke it. It was just a simple phrase when he came over and said, don't worry about it, it's okay. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> Wait till we get home. That meeting took 117 years. I lost 18 pounds due to sweat. <laughs> and when I got home, <laughs> so what's, so what's going on here? That God steps in when you've accused his servant. And I love the defense that God puts on display for Moses. To hear God himself say, this one is faithful. Moses wasn't perfect. 
but to hear God say, this one is faithful. And then to say, he's mine. He's my servant. What a good and defending God that we have. No wonder the hymn writer said, oh, worship the king, our shield and defender, the ancient of days. Thy bountiful care, what tongue can recite? He is good about defending his people. He even talks here to Moses and Aaron about the face-to-face life that he has with Moses. He defends his faithful servant. You need to hear that word today? My response in the flesh. You grumble, you accuse my first step is to step up, right? Well, let me, let, let, me, let me get my words in. But before Moses can even think about that, it's God who suddenly steps in and is Moses' strength and defender. Now listen, you and I have a ministry in that because you get two chapters later when everybody's grumbling against Moses, and by the way, not just Moses, they're grumbling against Moses and this current grumbler, Aaron. And what does God do for Moses and Aaron? Caleb, Joshua, he gets them to step up. And they defend Aaron and Moses. But ultimately and always, it's not even that. Although that, listen, that's a critical ministry you can have for your brothers and sisters in Christ to step up and to be looking for how it is you can defend one another. But I love how it, it, it ends, that moment ends in chapter 14. Caleb and Joshua say a word, but ultimately scripture says the glory of the Lord appeared. And that argument was over. God is our defender and will respond. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. God will be your shield and defender. How do you need to let that stuff go, though, and let him do his work and to not take matters into your own hands? Now, we see in Moses, if you're following in your notes, you see it in these verses here. He responds in a couple of ways. First is he responds through his character. Verse 3 even talks about the humility of Moses. Anybody have a problem with that verse when Ben read it, by the way? Who puts together the first five books of the Bible? Anybody remember? Anybody? Moses! And Moses was the most humble guy where? Around here? Oh, no, 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 no. The whole world. Now listen, we misuse that word most all the time when we should use the word more. We say best when we should say better. Huh? In the whole world, he's... He's the most. He's the best. Now, I, I think hopefully this is the Holy Spirit, as we believe the Spirit also uh, inspired the Word of God. So maybe the Spirit says, you put that down. Because the battle is won for Moses in his character. So many of our battles and temptations are fought long before they ever come before us. They're fought in the hard work of our quiet time and being with each other in groups, in our prayer life, in our study life, that we have made the commitment then to be formed in our hearts and in our character so that when we bump into temptation, that battle has already been won. So you see it here, this counting of his character, he is humble. 
And it takes that kind of character to not lash out. Whether it's Julius Caesar, A2 Brute, or Godfather II's, I know it was you, Fredo. This is, this is Aaron. This is Miriam. This is family coming at me now? Let me tell you what I think. Now again, God steps in before he can do that. But, but could it be this little parenthesis in, in verse 3 is telling us why God stepped in? Because Moses wasn't going to say anything. It's his character not to lash out. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on. How do you not punch back when you're, somebody brought up your wife? How do you not t- punch back? Somebody talks about your relationship with God. How do you not swing at that? It's one in our character first. And the testimony of Scripture in verse 3 is his humility. But also, I love this in verse 13. Finally, Moses does say a word. And what is it we get out of Moses in verse 13? Finally, he's going to say something. Get him, Moses. Miriam's been struck with leprosy. Let her have it. I told you so. What do you get from Moses in verse 13? God, heal her. God, heal her. The one that just stuck it to you? The one that just accused you? God, would you, would you heal her? We've got to let it go. It's not that it's not real. It's not that the hurt is not authentic. But you and I hold on to that, and there's going to be fallout for that. You just give it to the Lord, and you let the Lord deal with that. Lord, you heal her. Then look at the response very quickly of Aaron. And look, we're going to question why does Miriam take it on the chin, but you don't have Aaron with leprosy. Maybe some of you are struggling with that. Well, I think part of it could be that Aaron's learned his lesson. Aaron's the golden calf maker. And I I don't even want to talk about in in an open forum like this what was going on around that celebration when the golden calf was celebrated. Aaron got forgiven for that horrific act. And so when you get to this point, Aaron's kind of with Miriam, but he, excuse my grammar, he ain't saying nothing. He's experienced grace and reconciliation before. Maybe that's what's going on, and maybe that's why there's not the discipline. I trust the Lord with his discipline, but maybe it's because Aaron's just, I'm going to stand here, but I'm not going to accuse the one that God has has blessed and God's called us to leave us. Plus, it's just happened in Numbers chapter 5. There's already been an issue with jealousy, and so maybe Aaron is beginning to learn his lesson. And when he does finally say something, what does he say in verse 11 through 12? Listen, I, I know we don't have much time, but the, the, uh, you've all been there where you've done something horrible or bad. Let's just say bad. You've done something bad at school and somebody else gets blamed for it. What do you do? You say, look, I am so sorry. That's on me. I did that too. I need to be punished. No, you lay low, right? That's what you did. You know you did that. And friends respect that. They'd have done the same thing. They'd have let you be thrown under the bus. You lay low and just hope. And same with parents. You just try to get through it and escape. You don't say anything. It's not what Aaron does. What does he say in his prayer? It's not just Miriam. It's me too. I was a part of this. Would you heal my sister? He owns it. 
knowing that he's going to put the spotlight on himself. But why? Because my heart's broken for her. Don't let this happen to my sister. It's a great response. We all have guilt, and that shame or that hurt could keep us from God or others. Aaron does not let that happen. And then lastly, Miriam. She has a response, too, in verse 15. She allows herself to be received again. You, if God prunes us as he promises in John 15, if God disciplines us, the whole goal of that is reconciliation. The whole goal of that is to bring us home. And Miriam allows that discipline to do its work. She doesn't wallow in what's been done to her. She doesn't let that hurt or damage her relationship with God. She allows that to draw her closer to God. And maybe, maybe we're walking at arm's length because of something the Lord has called us out on or discipline he's, he's shared with us. Miriam does not allow that to happen. She is quick to come back. How do you and I need to hear that word this, this day? Are you quick to defend those that need defending as God did? How do you need to hear that God is our defender and I need to let him do his work and be like Moses and wait on that? Are you quick to pray even for your enemies? And are you quick to come back? Our Savior, as we heard so beautifully sung about the Lamb of God today, our Savior, when his accusers were accusing him, he fell silent. He basically said nothing. He did not lash back. Our Savior on his cross, we find him praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus on his death also, and ultimately that's the root of this jealousy, he trusts his Father to the point that he trusts his death and his body to the Father to take his life back up again. How is our trust of God with what he's given to us? How is it we need to repent of playing the what about them game and allow God to be our defender? Let's sing about that. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Let's stand together as we sing and as we respond.